This is the Big Issues Better Pod, acting today for a better tomorrow. If people have more agency, they don't have to worry about what, where they're living and their housing and choosing between heating and eating, then all of my concerns about influencer culture would almost be solved overnight. Today, more young people want to be influencers than want to be astronauts. And with the likes of Kylie Jenner and Dwayne Johnson getting paid almost a million pounds for a single post on Instagram, who could blame them? But is the influencer life as glamorous as it seems? In his new book, Get Rich or Lie Trying, Channel 4 News reporter Simeon Brown lifts the lid on influencer culture. It's a timely investigation. He meets young women who've had plastic surgery to fit the online ideal and a formerly homeless African migrant who's been paid to listen to racist abuse from alt-right livestream audiences. But Simeon doesn't vilify the influencers who met for his book. For many of the people making money by building a following online, it can seem a rational choice when faced with an insecure job market and the cost of living crisis. I'm Laura Kelly, Future Generations Editor at The Big Issue. I lead a team of exciting young journalists from backgrounds that are underrepresented in the media. My name is Sophie Dmitrievich and I work with the Future Generations team here at The Big Issue. Coming from an Eastern European background, I never really had the opportunities to pursue my dreams. So I really hope with today's Better Pod and with all our podcasts, we get to explore topics and help other people understand things that they might not be able to hear in other places or spaces. So Sophie, tell me a little bit about what you took away from our conversation with Simeon. As someone who uses social media every day, I guess I kind of found it shocking that when speaking to Simeon, I found out that I was also contributing to a really toxic um, influencer economy. So I hope that one thing that people can take away from this week's Better Pod is that social media isn't a reality and you shouldn't let it dictate your life. Hi, Simeon. Uh, thanks for joining Sophie and me. How's it going? Thanks for inviting me. For those who might be unclear on it, what does the word influencer mean to you? I mean, I guess to most people, they seem or attach the term influencer to a kind of minor celebrity with a huge following online um, archetypes, usually somebody who's been on Love Island or Kim Kardashian. For me, I'm interested in the idea of an influencer as, as a digital worker, somebody who is trying to generate income or get an advantage of in their livelihood via social media. So that makes it far more broader. And I think that putting it in a broader understanding of labour tells us a bit more about where, where this world is going and removes some of the kind of glamour that we attach to the, cel- the celebrities, certainly the A-listers, and looks at actually what is the nature of this work for most people in this day and age. So as you say, a lot of people think of kind of quite frivolous things when they think of the word influencer or what might seem as frivolous things. For you, why did it seem worthy to, as a topic to go into this real deep dive? I mean, I was I was really interested in the young people that I was coming across who were presenting as super affluent and wealthy. And actually, they weren't necessarily fitting into the archetype of what we think of as an influencer, albeit they had built huge social media followings that presented themselves as like traders, as like city kind of high flyers, whiz kids, hedge fund CEOs. But in reality, they were just marketing affiliates, promoting super dubious 
investment schemes. Um, in some cases, they were just gambling products. And they were even openly admitting that, no, you know what, we're actually influencers and we make money by what we sell. And so the subterfuge of what they were doing is what drew me into various different subcultures, but also sub-economies in which people felt that they had to misrepresent or ultimately do whatever ever they felt possible to make an income online, fundamentally because they were trying to escape precarity or to achieve their ambitions because it felt so elusive offline. And so for me, it was really about that dichotomy of, of what does the current economic possibilities look like for a generation? Why is it that the internet has this promise and how real is that promise? And what does that mean for people who are at the bottom of that social ladder? Some of the stories you uncovered are really hard to read. Were there moments during your investigation when you were shocked? Oh, what what did you find particularly hard to read? Well, it was quite a few, actually. I think mainly the stories of like the plastic surgeries. Which ones for you were like the hardest? A lot of the stories, I think they touch on a lot of ethical fault lines. Some engage, some some do touch on like outright fraud and legal behaviour. But start, a lot of it is like the ethics of work and the ethics of the nature of what, what we're doing. So, for example, I interviewed a man in California who at one point he'd been homeless, he'd been down and out, he'd been doing what he described as dead-end jobs. And then his life had basically changed when he'd effectively joined an alt-right kind of leaning live streaming community and they would effectively pay him to racially abuse him. That's how he could generate money from that particular live streaming audience. I think some readers want a book which is going to be more, not necessarily adversarial, but advocating a very particular moral approach. And I think that my book was more trying to present these things and say, okay, so you as a reader, like, what do you make of this? What are you cool with this? What, how, how does it make you feel? What does it tell us about kind of work? Do you think that if a guy goes on and uh, allows people to pay him to hear racist insults, or if a woman changes her body to this body shape, I just wonder whether you, you know, having immersed yourself in all of that thought, this really has an impact on broader society and that concerns me. I look at a lot of different subcultures and depending on the way that you, depending on if you, on how you read it and how you engage with it, these subcultures are either completely disparate and they're completely unrelated or they're the thread that connects them in terms of the way that they behave. And for me, there was a connection. I mean, the case of the surgery chapter, which is very, very, it was interesting for multiple reasons. One, I guess I started writing that chapter, I guess, before the BBL had as much ubiquity as it did, as it gathered last year. I think last year there was quite a bit on it. But for me, what was significant about that was this like the young women who I interviewed who effectively were altering their shapes because they felt like that was the demands of the labor that they were, the labor market that they were trying to enter because they believed that that was where the most obvious rewards for their life was. So young, one young woman said, you know, I have two children, I'm 20 years old. Going back to school is going to be tra- challenging. The only jobs that offered to me are super low income. I would like to have a decent income so that I can provide a good life for my children and for myself and to also have a sense of self-worth. What seems like the only place that's able to do that for me is the influence of the economy. I can build a following online. This is something that is real, that is attainable to me and just to the just to the you know just on a basic level that looks quite accurate it's quite rational she felt she had to modify her behavior to 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 do that 
Now, what was obviously happening in that particular space is that there is a whole world in which it feels like people who are in that uh, culture, those communities, are, are building a level of fraternity or sisterhood, and they're all sharing tips about surgery, and they're being honest with each other, they're being open, and they're befriending each other. But beneath that are the incentives by which, okay, these pla- these surgeries are popping up, they're offering us surgeries. Um, if we promote it, and if they see that we have a substantial following, then they will give us discounts or free surgeries. Therefore, there becomes an inherent incentive to misrepresent to their supposed friends because they really, they are a community of people that they're trying to influence as well. And so it was how there was a double-edged sword, right, of one, some of their ambitions being taken advantage of by exploitative pop-up companies in which their actual health could be at risk. Then also them not necessarily declaring some of these risks to their own followers, even when they had been botched. So there's like a whole manner of different things that are taking place all of it economic and there's different levels of exploitation and different levels of agency at, at play i'm going to ask you one technical question first so for for some people they may not know what a bbl is so it's uh... oh right yeah i always forget that people don't know what a bbl is i always forget that it's like i guess a Bra- brazilian butt lift where you have fat sucked from your kind of maybe unflattering areas, alleged unflattering areas, and put it like enhanced into your kind of buttocks so you have this kind of hourglass shape. So there's an interesting conversation, I think, around that as well with uh, with race, because obviously some of the surgeries that are being done and, um, and also some of the other cultures, um, like many cultures before, are appropriating authentic black voices and then, you know, then pushing those out by people who are more wealthy, more powerful, frequently white. And I wonder if that was something that that really struck you when you started engaging with those cultures and with kind of influencer culture. A lot of books when you read about, I guess, the internet or social media phenomena, it might be written by someone like, I don't know, John Ronson, or it might be, you know, it's written by like, you know, like a white man and it's like this is the way I see the world and it's like it's from his vantage point but like the vantage point that I had and I declare it in the essay is that you know I'm a millennial from kind of Tottenham inner city uh, working class like black afro-proletariat grew up during this kind of this hegemony of hip-hop and so this was my insight into this world this is my vantage point and then therefore this frames the way that I'm connecting the dots between big tech and culture for me, race was something that was not overt, but was very present. And I guess in the chapter Black Lives Matter, here's my cash up. It's overtly about that. I think that for me anyway, black Twitter and black uh, culture has given a lot of the internet its language. I guess in my book, I was trying to unpick some of the implications of that, less so on just the appropriation of that by companies. I mean, I, I mentioned a little bit about how companies have benefited from that, um, certainly in that chapter, but also how a profit motive has been introduced into kind of social movements, particularly black social movements like Black Lives Matter, and how the growth of activism on platform capitalism, on social media is limited by those platforms because those platforms encourage a certain form of behavior. They create celebrity as opposed to um, collective-based um, movements. It uh, rewards people who appeal to biases and then not people who necessarily try and do build coalitions. 
And so this kind of thing kind of limits the capacity to really build kind of uh, social movements. Things can easily be hijacked and, and undermined and just turned into content and how content production can be quite a depoliticizing affair. So right now, everybody thinks that all you've got to do is make content about things that you think will change the world. Make content about homelessness, make content about inequality, make content about this, but actually, rather than really building a substantial political movement, it just kind of goes into the churn and becomes like just like more content and something that ultimately doesn't lead to people actually doing the really nitty gritty unattractive parts of, of social change. Wow, that's that's some challenging stuff for Sophie and I, <laughs> and for yourself as well, right? For all of us as journalists to think about it in those ways and think about how you can uh, be an agent for change, which is obviously what our podcast is all yeah, about. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, um, so that's, some, that's some, I think you're going to have left us with um, some really big thinking to do around that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Coming up, can influencer culture be fixed? Did you know you can get The Big Issues award-winning journalism through your door every week? As a Better Pod listener, you can sign up to get a four-week subscription to the best in news, politics and culture for just £12. And we'll even throw in a stylish tote bag for free. Go to bigissue.com slash bigpod to find out more. One in five young people want to be influencers, but I can imagine that's eventually going to go on the rise as time goes on. But um, why do you think that might seem more attractive than traditional nine to five? Some people read that headline and like, oh my God, it's shocking. But I think um, I think it just speaks to the, the visibility of that work. But more significantly than that, the reality is that more people are, are making money online. Digital work is growing. And even if you are not somebody who works directly in the digital economy, you work indirectly in the digital economy. If you work in media, you're... You, you're a digital worker and other spheres as well I mean even like the world of LinkedIn is like people curate themselves online and these investors and all kinds of people are pivoting the content to enhance their labor prospects so digital is becoming all-consuming in work that we do um, increasingly so and certainly when the pandemic happened it was like the only game in town for most people so I think that I think that for me that that is the area to really watch and what does this really mean and what does this come with because Digital work, a lot of the time, is work which is much more uh, prevalent in the gig economy. And the gig economy is one where you know workers have less rights, and a lot of the, I guess, the gains of the labour movement over the past hundred plus years have actually been in regression. And I guess the promise is well, flexible work, higher earning, like it's a win-win. But actually, for most people, that's not really the case. And so it's really about what is the increase of digital work mean for the quality of lives for most people or are we just going to see a huge divergence in in basically lies between the, the digital the digital haves and the digital have-nots and i guess that's really the dilemma that we're facing now especially as some of these platforms reward their shareholders and basically billionaires who buy them and own them as opposed to the people who effectively are like working in the farm on twitter tweeting all day generating all this content for shareholders um so I get that's really the dilemma of our time for me. Do you think you might have followed the influencer path if it was available to you when you were growing up? The thing is, the influencer path is is open to everybody. I mean, I'm I've been online, I've had I've been on Twitter for like I don't know, thirteen, fourteen years. Do you know what I'm saying? That's a long time. We are we're all being pulled into kind of influencer type work. Um, if you have a social media profile, which is, and it's like I guess it's like if I didn't have 
a secure staff job, then there's a likelihood that I might feel that I have to do more based content online to get a full-time job and to get work. And then therefore you'll pull down that road and then pull, pull further more into that labor. I'm already involved in that space, you know what I'm saying? It's not to, for me to say, oh, they're the influencers, I'm not an influencer. I mean, the, last, the, the last chapter is like, we are all influencers because we are all engaged in this in this, this digital rat race to some extent. So, so yeah, no, I think I think that it's really about you know, if I didn't have a full-time job, what if my economic prospects weren't what they were, how much more online would I be? At the end of your research, did you come away thinking that influencer culture could be fixed? <laughs> I always get I always get asked this. Um, the thing is, is that you know, if you if if the other issues, if people have more agency, they don't have to worry about what where they're living and their housing and choosing between heating and eating, then all of my concerns about influencer culture would almost be solved overnight. It wouldn't be a, a case of people feeling desperate just to do whatever they can and do and to, to get rich or lie trying. And these pressures w- wouldn't exist so much. So it's like, it's as much a challenge to, I guess, our social and economic consensus as it is like people doing filters and things of that nature. Because I think if people have more agency than they, they can have a fighting chance of not being pulled into the Twitter plantation or gram life or whatever and the scams and all these kind of things. So that that, that for me is like the real, is, is the real thing that needs addressing. Every week we ask our guests three questions that look ahead for future generations, which I'm aware we've been doing lots of already, um, but we've got three ones that we're going to ask you. So if that's all right with you, I'm going to hand you over to Sophie. Okay, cool. To start off with, um, what's one bit of advice you wish you'd known earlier? My advice, one thing that you should always do with your book is always reference as you go, because you don't want to finish a book and then have to put the references at the end. That is actually a nightmare. It's a reference as you go, and I wish I did that to begin with. I feel like every university student who's sitting, having finished their essay, is cheering you on right now. <laughs> um, what's one piece of art that gives you hope for the future? It's a good question. Well, I mean, I'm sitting under a piece of art, so why not? It's a bit it's an easy answer, but this is a piece by uh, Shola Olulode, uh, up-and-coming artist. It's just, it's just a piece about, I guess, love and... People see different things in it. Um, but yeah, no, it's like they're having a picnic. There's, there's hopeful, it's good vibes, nice colour, feels rich. And I don't know, it, 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 I feel like it gives me a lift. Yeah, it's beautiful. So for our listeners, we're looking at a painting on Simeon's wall. Um, it's two figures sitting, as you say, sitting having a picnic. And what, what would you call the kind of that, um, the, the style of the art? It, or it's, the style it's, of the painting, it, rather. It, it, I would say that it, it's it's figurative, but it's like figurative expressionist. Expressionist, you know what I mean? It's like, it's literal, but with a twist. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, And um, it's, on, it's on a tie-dyed canvas, um, which is tie-dyed and a green, and then the people are brought to life by a kind of acrylic paints. Um, and it's quite, it's quite, it's quite rich and vibrant. What's one thing our listeners could do today to make tomorrow better? One thing that everybody can do is always put their litter in the bin. I do think that a lot of big changes require kind of real collective action. That's like a policy level. 
So I don't want to be like, human beings need to be responsible for, I don't know, things, th- things, things which are easier said than done that require more action. But certainly like being, being in control of your litter, I think that's easy to do, I think. Thanks for listening to Better Pod. If you'd like to support us, please subscribe, leave a review and tell your friends. We're relying on word of mouth to bring people into our conversation and to help us all discover how we can act today for a better tomorrow. You can keep up with all the big issues reporting at bigissue.com where you can also discover how to find your local vendor.